0: In May 2012, a group of faculty went to Shanghai University to represent the University of Kentucky and present a series of lectures on globalization, identity, and cultural diversity. As part of this symposium, Frank Walker, a professor of English and Afrolachian poet, gave a presentation on race and Appalachian poetry. In this session, Walker challenges Appalachian stereotypes by looking at the variety of cultural and artistic contributions made by people of color in Appalachia. I'm going to do a couple things. One of the things to mention up first is that that I'm a poet, and I'm going to share some scholarship with you, although I don't claim to be a scholar. I really cling closer to the idea that I'm a poet and a writer. Uh, But it's important to give you the context for the poems I'm going to hopefully share at the end of my, 30-minute conversation with you. Uh, And the thing about what you just heard regarding the region uh, you heard several references that talked about uh, the negative depictions of a region of the country by people who don't live there. Uh, people who are outsiders who came in for a weekend, in some cases, or in some cases, not even visited but made decisions, uh, characterized a group of people, assessed a set of values and morals and lifestyles of them that didn't really fit. And as as negative, as those images are about those people, one of the things that I think is even more horrendous is that whatever their assessment was for almost 80 years, it almost always left out people of color. Uh, the region was always depicted in a negative way, but they made a group of people who lived in the same space invisible. So I'm gonna start out just referencing two things that really drive these images of the region and its mass media. Even from here, you have, you have access to television uh, and old movies and sitcoms. The one on the left is a reference to Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, and in the Beverly Hillbillies, people of the Appalachian region are represented as, as ignorant and backwards, uh, uncultured, uh, almost country bumpkins who have no place in the city. And the whole idea and premise of that sitcom is based on making fun of that lifestyle, and those way, that way of living for those individuals. Even though the gentleman up front on the left uh, is kind of a wise man. And the good thing about those shows is that he always was a person who came through at the end to, to kind of save the day or give an assessment of what happened. But almost everybody else, uh, in the back on the right, the old lady is holding a gun. Uh, so she was this crazy woman uh, who would shoot anybody, uh, who challenged her. The young woman on her left, who they were trying to get married, was always portrayed in a a very sexualized way. Uh, The young man driving was always represented as the dumbest person on the show. (laughs) So none of these ideas and images were very positive. Even the the old uh, wise man was a stereotype, but there was something about this show that made this one of the longest-running sitcoms on television in the United States. Even today in the United States, even though it's been over for almost 30 years, people still watch episodes of Beverly Hillbillies, and people still ascribe those images that came from that show to people living in the region. On the right is a contemporary version of the same thing. Right now on Showtime and HBO in some places, a new show called Justified is set uh, and it's about the same group of people, the same kind of gun-toting violence, Uh, is present. The same kind of ignorance and unculturedness is represented uh, in a variety of ways. And and the thing about that is that, again, it's people from the outside who are coming in and saying, this is what this region is like. Uh, And what I want to share with you is that in spite of all those negative ways of showing the region, what's most egregious is that they pretend people of color who look like me don't exist in that region. Uh, So that's what I'm going to share with you. In 1991, next slide, a word was invented and it actually appears in American uh, and Oxford dictionaries now. The word is Afrolachian. And the word Afralachian is a word that I created as part of a poem because I was trying to respond to looking in a dictionary and seeing the dictionary's definition that said, to be Appalachian, you had to be a white resident of the mountainous regions of Appalachia. I looked at my skin. I looked at my family skin, looked at people I knew who lived in the region, and realized that we could never be Appalachian if that was the definition. So I created a new word that transposed the two P's in Appalachia and just kind of forced Africa onto that word and created Afrolachia, um, an African American who was native to or resides in Appalachia. And the thing about that word is that, and the definition, is that in the dictionary, it does say, as modifier afro poets. And for me, that's a personal tribute to where the word came from. I'm a member of a writing group called the afro poets. Uh, my first book of poetry is called afro uh, And those poets were part of a group of artists who not only came together to create work uh, that dealt with social justice issues, identity, place, and, and family, They really were committed to redefining this definition of what the region was, to actually fight against and work against these ideas that render people of color invisible in the same region. And when you talk about that region, those 13 states, what you usually get, you get the silhouette that starts up in the right with New York, you know New York City. Uh, New York City is just outside that region that's that's Appalachia. Under New York City, you get Pennsylvania, you get West Virginia, the only state where the entire state is actually in Appalachia. If you continue south, you get part of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, my home state, Kentucky, and Ohio. And people still said that it was all white in spite of these facts. Go to the next slide. These are some percentages. Uh, of African-Americans who, even today, still live in cities that are inside that region. In Charleston, West Virginia, the population is almost 18% African-American. Okay? These numbers increase. Tennessee, Knoxville, almost 19%. All the way to Birmingham, Alabama, uh, where the population is almost 73% African-Americans. I don't know how you can look at a state that uh, African or African-American and say it's all white. And you can do that if you only visit that state on television and if somebody controls that image uh, from a boardroom somewhere and they want to make you think that this is what it looks like, it fits in this nice small box. And the thing about those regions and those states and those numbers is that they don't include everybody because there's a whole group of people who had to leave the region to find work. You go to the next slide these cities, including my current Lexington, Kentucky, are all cities officially outside the region, uh, but they're a home to large populations of out-migrants, individuals who live in the region, who moved out of the region to find work, who still go back home to visit family, uh, to go to funerals, uh, to have family vacations and uh, picnics, but they still claim the region as home. So these, these numbers are even larger than the previous numbers. Imagine if there was no out-migration, how large those numbers would be. Anywhere from 13% in Lexington, Kentucky to 61% in Atlanta, Georgia, which is just barely outside the region. And it expands the entire territory. So those numbers alone are enough to make you challenge this idea that Appalachia is all white, homogeneous, devoid of people of color. And I'm just talking about African-Americans. I'm not including Cherokee Native Americans, not including Latinos. Uh, there's even a term I've heard recently called Asian Asian, or um, a phrase that tries to uh, explain why there might be Arab Americans in Appalachia. Uh, so all those hybrid names are people claiming the region and claiming their identity at the same time. And we all realize that's very important. If you go to the next slide, it's important for several reasons. Because if you leave out people of color, uh, it's easy to stereotype that region as something very, very negative. When you add people of color, particularly African-Americans, you get a whole group of people, uh, including artists, scholars, notable individuals who've done some significant things in American history. Uh, this gentleman, Carnegie Woodson, is considered the father of African-American History Week, which is now African-American History Month. And he was a scholar uh, who matriculated from Harvard University which is the big deal, all of you know Harvard University. <laughs> Carlos G. Woodson, as a young man, was a coal miner. He worked in the mines, he visited Kentucky, he went to Berea College, uh, went back and forth from <coughs> Virginia to Kentucky, and he's definitely Appalachian, but he doesn't fit the traditional definition, so he's an afro Appalachian. Mm-hmm. One example. Booker T. Washington is the famous civil rights activist and leader of Tuskegee Institute. Uh, also from the region, as a young man, he was a coal miner. He came from families that mined coal. Uh, very important individual in African American history. If you look up uh, a list of individuals who are responsible for integration and, and moving the races in America closer together, uh, Booker T. Washington gets a lot of uh, credit for being an advisor to presidents. I and mean, he really wanted uh, white people and black people in America to get along. Just after the Civil War, which was a very contentious time in American history, so he's very important in American history. August Wilson, uh, who is the most famous African American playwright, period, uh, in history, he's from the region. He wrote about uh, something that kind of challenges the notion of Appalachia. He wrote about a, a rural ex- experience uh, that really wasn't rural; uh, it was very urban. Because most people think Appalachia is all rural. It's all out in the country. There are no skyscrapers, uh, no fast cars, no stoplights. It's just mountains and cabins and uh, outdoor toilets. But it's not true. Uh, Pittsburgh is in the region, officially. August Wilson wrote about his neighborhood. He wrote about his family. He wrote about people of color. Uh, He characterized a whole group of people for over three generations. He wrote a cycle of, of ten plays that discussed the entire 20th century for African American people, but people don't talk about him as being Appalachian. Uh, So we claim him as Appalachian because he lives in the region and he wrote about people from the region. Um, And if you add August Wilson, if you add Carnegie Woodson, if you add Booker T. Washington, those three people alone to negative stereotypes like Little Abner, Dukes of Hazzard, uh, Snuffy Smith, uh, images that aren't just stereotypes but caricatures because they not only take these negative ideas they reduce people to cartoons uh, to to flat two-dimensional characters and not real people and if you add these people of color you you know that can't be true at all we keep moving uh, Birmingham Alabama is very famous in African-American history for several reasons one is, this is almost the center of a lot of civil rights activity in the '60s. Uh, Angela Davis is a product of Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, she's one of the most famous uh, black activists because of her connection with the Communist Party in USA, and as one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party, you know, two very uh, progressive parties that were born out of the civil rights era. She was from that same space that people said was all white, uh, but they never connect Angela Davis. To the region, uh, moving away from politics and scholarship, uh, the number of artists from the region is even more amazing. Bessie Smith, as a very famous blues artist, that began singing in the region and eventually moved around the rest of the country and even abroad to share her love of music and the way she sang it. You know, she was one of a long group of musicians who not only made music, but the way they did it. Uh, made them the best in their category. I mean, they almost transcended the genre. Uh, Bessie was one of those. Next slide. Nina Simone did it even more. She was almost impossible to put into a category because she sang gospel and jazz, blues, uh, rock and roll. She could sing anything. But she was also a civil rights activist. One of her most famous songs is called "Mississippi Goddam," and that song was written in response to what was happening during the Civil Rights era, after the assassination of Mega Evers and Martin Luther King, she was so angry that she wrote that song, and it became an anthem during the, uh, the Civil Rights era. And in some cases, they wouldn't let her perform because she was such an activist. But this combination of, of arts and activism became one of the byproducts of what people with those kind of morals were doing in the region. But it wasn't separate from the region, because if you think about the one primary a characteristic of, of Appalachians is that it's that pioneering spirit. it's that sense of independence? Uh, is that need to not only do it in their own way, but do it in a way that is higher and better, and still has excellence about it? Uh, Nina Simone represented that in a very big way. You can go to the next slide. Bill Withers, another example. Of, there are a lot of movies made every year that have some of his songs on their soundtrack. And the songs are almost 40 years old now. Um, You may have heard the song Lean On Me. Uh, It's one of the most famous. Uh, Just As I Am is also famous. But he worked with so many uh, other authors and, and musicians. The thing about Bill that's important is because of his morals and values, he actually left the music industry at the height of his success. Because he got into a conflict with how his music was being represented. He didn't want to be a commercial musician. He wanted to make music uh, that appealed to people at their grassroots moral level. One of my favorite songs that he wrote was called Grandma's Hands. And he wrote this song during a time in America when people were trying to represent African American men as this very urban, uh, rough, aggressive, uh, very physical and violent kind of way, and he was not any of that. And he wanted to make music that said, Uh, black men could be soft uh, and moral and upright uh, and warm and friendly and make beautiful music and he did that his entire career and I admire him a lot because he's still alive, he still writes music he still makes money thanks to royalty checks uh, from the same old music from 40 years ago that's Bill Withers Roberta Flack uh, concert musician, piano player song, songstress uh, almost the same thing uh, very well educated, uh, her moral fibers also separated her from the rest of the musicians of her era. Uh, She's also still performing today on a lot of soundtracks. <coughs> next slide. We're going to jump forward almost 30 years. This next group, uh, I'm going to tell you about them first before I show you a picture. It's called the Carolina Chocolate Drops. who took their name after a group called the Tennessee Chocolate Drops from 50 years ago. Uh, When people think about the music of Appalachia, they think about string music. You heard some yesterday uh, when Ron Penn played, but people don't connect string music to African-Americans even though the banjo is an African instrument. Even though uh, one of the most active groups today performing string music is the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and they look like this. Next slide. All young, uh, college educated, uh, Oberlin College, Arizona State, uh, NYU, Columbia College, but the are musicians. Uh, they play hip-hop, they play string, they listen to pop. A uh, very broad sense of, of what art is and what music can be, but they play traditional string music. Uh, and they tour the world, so if they ever come to Shanghai, you must go to that concert. You, you won't forget it. <laughs> Now we're moving to the world of literature. One of the most famous poets for the region is Nikki Giovanni uh, from Knoxville, Tennessee, right in the heart of Appalachia. And they almost never connect her with the region. Uh, when they talk about African-American poets, uh, when I talk about American literature, she gets a mention. Uh, she's very popular, very well-known, very widely read. But she's almost never associated with the region. And she writes about, she has a poem called Knoxville, going home to Knoxville, Tennessee. She talks about the food and the family uh, the storytelling, the oral traditions, everything that makes up the region, uh, she's part of that, and she's proud of it. And she teaches in Virginia right now uh, at Virginia Tech, and people travel from all over the the country just to be in her classrooms because she's such a consummate uh, poet and teacher, top tier. Sonia Sanchez, another poet from the same era, Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni were very active during the Black Arts Movement, which uh, happened simultaneously with the black power movement which happened after the civil rights movement in the United States. So it was kind of a marriage of art and politics, that art and activism that is really a good illustration of what these artists represent and what the afro poets, the group I'm part of, still try to emulate today. Uh, Sonia was even more active because she was influenced uh, largely by Malcolm X, a uh, very strong and very uh, vibrant political activist from the same era. Um, she worked with Etheridge Knight, Hakim Aboudi, Nikki Giovanni, Amiri Baraka. Uh, all these names are, are very large names when you talk about the importance of the Black Power Movement and the Black Arts Movement and the fact that they coexisted. They were brother and sister uh, movements that happened simultaneously in the United States. I'm going to close with slides that talk about the Afro Latin poets. Um, when I mentioned that in 1991, I wrote that poem, that used the word Afrolatchee for the first time. I took that word back to a writing group that was meeting every Monday night in a place called the Martin Luther King Cultural Center, and I shared the poem. And that group had been meeting for almost a year as a group, but the group did not have a name. Before the night was over, they were so taken by the idea of the word Afrolatchee that the group agreed to call themselves the Afrolatchian Poets. Uh, the thing about the African poets was they, they slash we, wanted to be a group that was inclusive. Uh, from the very beginning, our membership was broad. Uh, we actually have Chinese-American members, we have Puerto Rican members, we have honorary white members. Uh, most of the founders all look like this, go to the next slide. This is Crystal Wilkinson on the top left, who's a fiction writer, uh, was nominated for the Orange Prize in London. Uh, for her second book of short stories. Nikki Finney, in the top middle, just won a National Book Award for her last collection of poetry. Uh, Kelly Norman Ellis teaches at Chicago State University. She runs the MFA program. She's a consummate uh, teacher and writer. Mitchell L.H. Douglas teaches in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, All of his books have won awards. Uh, On the far right, Tanya James is a fiction writer. She's East Indian, a former student of mine. Uh, she has a triple book deal with Knopf Publishing out of New York City. Uh, Bianca Spriggs, to my left, is probably the youngest member of the group right now. She's a graduate student at the University of Kentucky who is telling me be better than all of us. She's a filmmaker, she's a poet, she's a fiction writer, she writes nonfiction, she's a scholar, she's amazing, and she's our future. And that bald headed man is me when I was younger. Go <laughs> to the next slide. This is. Uh, this is the poem that Kelly Norman Ellis wrote that I wanted to share with you because I think it represents uh, a really broad section of, of, uh, of how we see the region and which parts we claim uh, and how much history is involved in it. Because when we talk about our love for family, our commitment to community, uh, this ideal around identity and place, we almost have to include the history of the region and our own family history. So I'm going to share this with you if I can see it and should ever. This poem is introduced with a quote uh, from Audre Lorde, who is now deceased, and she said, I is a total black being spoken from the earth's inside. There are many kinds of open. How a diamond comes into a knot of flame, how sound comes into a word colored by who pays what for speaking, and this was the inspiration for Kelly's poem, And she was trying to figure out a way to describe the region, everything I just talked about, but she wanted to do it in one single poem. And she came up with this Afrolachian. I be a nipple of coal, the savior's blood on dogwood, the sun bleached blues of cow bones. I am the hiding places of slaves and poke salad. I praise the sugar tit and the cooling board, the banjo's black fingers, the winding road in Bill Withers' voice. I praise the Ohio's vicious salvation, and were you there when they crucified our Lord? Were you there? Praises to Nina and Booker T, and even Elvis' Cherokee hips. Praises to Bessie and Roberta and the Loving's first kiss. Like the conjure of the blue-black granny or the whereabouts of Gypsy Graves, I am sacred. I am prayer. I am ginseng root. I am a secret, like a girl giving birth in a tobacco field, wet, silent. The lingering sweetness of blue ridge sunrise surrounding her. I be that warm, open place at the root. Praise this lovely black flame. And as beautiful as that is, it's just chock full of history. Some things you may not know that are included there that I claim in the physical space uh, on the right column the next to last stanza, the reference to Blue Ridge is about the Blue Ridge Mountains. I mean, she's claiming that space, that physical geographical space that people say or try to say that people of color did not live in. Uh, she's claiming it in the inside the poem. Uh, you heard me reference Nina Simone, Booker T. Washington, uh, Bill Withers uh, for their scholarship and their musical talent which they contributed. Uh, she claims them in the side of the space in the same poem. Uh, the reference to the Lovings first kiss is a historical reference Uh, in the United States for a long time it was illegal for interracial couples, black and white couples to get married Uh, the Lovings were a couple from the region who moved out of the region uh, and got married in D.C. and then moved back and they were arrested for getting married because it was against the law for blacks and whites to marry and she claimed that space and that history inside the same poem. Um, the other things that claim the space uh, and reference the nipple of coal uh, is is something that uh, she says at the very front of her poem. In the same way that Audre Lorde's in introduction talks about how uh, the earth inside, you know, that diamond-centered that thing, that physical coal, how there's no separation. Uh, from coal and, and coal mining and black people, even though the stereotype says that there are no black coal miners, but it's not true. Uh, in the mass media, in television, in Hollywood, you don't see black coal miners. You don't see women coal miners, but those aren't true either. Uh, so she challenges all those notions inside this very beautiful poem, and I think that it's a great representation of what we try to do as a collective. Um, and given the time, I'm going to close with a few poems of my own. we have about four minutes, I think. If that's okay with you, do you want to hear a poem or two? Of course. All right, I'll I'll read two and close. Because I'm from Kentucky, uh, a lot of you know about Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, (laughs) bourbon, horses, or basketball. This is a poem called "Death by Basketball." Before and after school, he stood on a milk crate, eyeballed the mirror, and only saw Wayne Turner, an All-American, at tournament time. A third grader just off the bus, barely four feet off the ground. He dropped his books, sank a J from the top of the key, and heard the crowd roar. Beat his man off the dribble with a breaking neck crossover. Heard the crowd roar, slammed himself on a box of Wheaties. He was out there every night, under a street light, fighting through double picks, talking trash to imaginary body checks. You can't hold me, fool, fake right. This is my planet, drive left. Is the camera on? Reverse layup, finish with a tray from downtown. Swish, I'm in the zone tonight. Who got next? More than a little light in the ass. Hands so small, the ball almost real with him. He formed his own layup line in the blue grass. Wildcat jersey hanging like a summer dress on a court made ball from daily use. And instead of writing his spelling words, he signed a contract he could barely read. He a commitment in big block letters to the NBA and Nike and Sprite. Scribble superstar in cursive with a fat red pencil and practice his million dollar smile, not his multiplication table. Think of how many chocolate mix he could buy with his all-star game appearance fee after recess. Another shooting, another tragic death, another little genius who will never test out of a dream that kills legitimate futures every night under street lights wherever these products are sold. And one more, in honor of my mother, uh, who would love the fact that I'm here, or we're here, my lovely fiance and I, Um, This is a poem called, Creek Philosophy. Mama turned us out of doors to discover what it meant to be human. My search led me off the asphalt, down the narrow, worn path to the creek, where I studied with the master, learning to recognize what I would come to know as resilience, while experiencing the humility of my failed attempts to stop the flow of water with dumb, round stones. Even my perceived ability to direct a steady current proved more a lesson in cooperation than control. Skipping rocks came to represent what the delicate surface of water had to say about deflecting hard times and even harder people, until they were slow and heavy enough to just let go of. I grew to understand that if I could hear the individual voices in the heavy percussion of water falling, And I would see my own heart beat, feel the blood in my own creeks when I made a fist, and eventually come to know the difference between being heavy in the world and knowing peace. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences and the American Studies Center at Shanghai University for making this podcast possible.